Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. We all care about the environment, some more than others, especially those of us on the West Coast. But places thousands of miles away have water that is our birthright. We're San Andreas Water and Power. Without our tireless efforts to keep the water and subsidies flowing, San Andreas could dry up like a woman in her 50s. No green lawns, no swimming pools, no lush golf courses in the desert. Sure, you may have to pay the piper sometime, but let's all work together to make sure it's not just yet. San Andreas Water and Power. The video game of the year. Roger that, Bravo Sierra. We've got some insurgents killing orphans, and they've got some nerve toxin and a nuke and a random flashback level on which JFK and Castro do get out on the moon. Righteous Slaughter 7. Copy that, Red Leader. Call in the airstrike. Righteous Slaughter 7. The realistic art of contemporary killing. How do you kill? Rated PG. Pretty much the same as the last game. What's up, spooky motherfuckers? I am aware that last year for the spooky season, leading up to and including Halloween, I screwed the pooch pretty bad. So, in an effort to not repeat my mistakes of last year, I have picked out a bunch of content for this month, and I'm going to be doing a Days of Halloween special. You don't have to pay for it, it's going to be free wherever good podcasts are listed. And we're going to kick it off today with a subject matter that I know quite a bit about, and I've spent a lot of time in this place. Today we're going to be talking about Death Valley, which, for those of you that live under a rock, is a valley of death in California. It's a desert in California. If you didn't know that, pay attention in school. A land of extremes. Death Valley is one of the hottest, driest parts and lowest places on Earth, with summer summer temperatures averaging well over 100 degrees and a long history of human suffering in the vast expanses of desert. The valley is appropriately named, or so it would seem. However, the people who have called Death Valley home since ancient times do not agree with that statement. These people are the Timbisha Shoshone Indians. The Shoshone tribe has lived in the Great Basin region south and east of the Sierra Nevada mountain range for more than a thousand years. Distributed widely from Southern California, Death Valley, Mono Lake, through Utah to Western Colorado, the Timbasha Band have long made their home in Death Valley, and some continue to live there to this day. According to an ancient Shoshone legend, Death Valley was not always the arid and heated place it is today. Rather, oral tradition says that the valley was beautiful and fertile at one point. Natural springs were abundant, and a large lake surrounded by trees and lush vegetation filled the lowest point. Settling around the spring pools and meadows, they lived off the land by tending to corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, wildlife, and groves of mesquite trees, cultivating the nutritious seed pods. They traveled to the mountains to hunt abundant game and gather pinion pine nuts. Their connection to the land was strong, and remains so to this day. 
In the early days of their history, the Timbasha people were ruled by a beautiful queen. But she was vain, demanding, and longed for a mansion that would be larger and more beautiful than anything that her neighbors to the south, that would be the Aztecs, had ever built. She soon ordered her people to build her a grand home and forced them to transport marble, stone, quartz, and timber to the building site to construct the palace. In the beginning, the people worked hard to please her, dragging and hauling the stones and logs over long distances, considering it their duty to make her dreams come true. They did not complain, however, because royalty to them was sacred. However, as the years passed, the queen began to fear that she would die before the palace was completed and became more and more demanding about it, even insisting that her own family work along with the rest of her people. Gradually, the Timbisha became a tribe of slaves, and the queen began to lash their naked backs if they slowed down during the noonday heat. On one occasion, she even flogged her daughter when she thought the girl was working too slowly. At being hit, the princess dropped her, loads of st her load of stone and turned to her mother, cursing her and her stupid kingdom. She then sank to the ground. Overcome by heat and exhaustion, she died. It was only then that the queen realized how far her greed and obsession had taken her. She had replaced a culture rich in family values and love of nature and of the land itself with slavery. In her greed, she had tossed away the people and lifestyle that she most loved. But her regret and insight came too late. Soon, nature and the land itself began to turn on her, punishing her for her wickedness and short-sightedness. The sun increased its heat and brightness, causing the vegetation to wither the streams and lakes to dry up, and the animals to flee. The once fertile valley was soon a barren, dry, and extremely hot desert. Many of her people died of starvation, and those who didn't die fled. Only the queen and her half-finished palace remained when she was struck ill with fever. With no one to soothe or care for her, she died alone in her empty, half-finished home. Shoshone legend has long said that glimpses of her half-finished palace can still be seen sometimes in the desert heat, seemingly lifting into view or as a shifting mirage along the horizon. With this legend, the Shoshone explain the origins of Death Valley, which they have long called Ground of Fire. But when a group of gold-seeking 49ers blundered into the area, they renamed it Death Valley. For years, it was believed that no human could cross the desert and live, because horses or other livestock would sink up to their knees in drifts of soda dust, there was no water, and its heat is fucking miserable. Animals that die in the valley mummify but do not decay, and it surmised the remains of many an ignorant prospector lie bleached beneath the plain. On the east side of Dead Mountain are points of whitened rock that at a distance look like sheeted figures, and these, the natives say, are the ghosts of their brethren. The Shoshone were devastated to learn that the early pioneers misunderstood their homeland enough to name it Death Valley. To those who had lived in the area for more than a thousand years, the valley had provided everything they needed for survival, comfort, and contentment. The simple brush homes, or dome-shaped wiki-ups, made perfect desert dwellings, allowing breezes to filter in through the arrowweed walls. There were plants, springs, and many kinds of wildlife, from bighorn sheep to rabbits and lizards. The people ranged over the land in seasonal patterns to harvest the fruit, seeds, and plants. Pinion pines and mesquite beans were a major part of their diet. Men made bows and arrows and hunted while women collected plants and made baskets. 
some of which were so intricately coiled that they could hold water. Today, many of the Timbisha Shoshone continue to live in Death Valley on a reservation located near Furnace Creek, which is appropriately named. Established in 1982, it was only 40 acres. However, the Timbisha Shoshone Homeland Act of 2000 finally returned 7,500 acres of ancestral homeland to the Timbisha Shoshone tribe. Currently, the tribe consists of around 300 members, of which about 50 live at the Death Valley Indian community. Many members also spend their summers at Lone Pine in the Owens Valley to the west, which is an absolutely beautiful area, if you're ever in that area. Spend some time there. It's great. So that is the brief history of Death Valley. Now let's get into some of the spooky shit. The strange, the unexplained, the hard to define, if you will. Uh, It's a bit of a, I'm not going to say conspiracy, but it's a bit of a, an Old West make-em-up. Let's say that. Old West make-em-up. Call it a con, call it a grift, call it a good story to pass the time, but this is an interesting one, and uh, it's cropped up a few times in history. You'll, If you're familiar with the Manson family, you'll remember some of Charlie's desert rant talking about some of the stuff that we're going to cover, and uh, I'll read you some more sources. I think you'll enjoy it, and uh, enough of that shit. Take a quick break, then we'll jump into it. Don't miss the next episode of Serious Cougar. Eunice goes on a bender with a pool boy and breaks her hip. If women in their 20s don't know their ass from their elbow, and women in their 50s know what they like, imagine being with an experienced, pleasure-loving octogenarian wrestling with dementia and horniness. The show that hits below the belt, just like her breasts. Serious Cougar, Wednesday nights at 9 on Weasel. Speaking of cougars, There aren't any in New Jersey. Now let's talk about Death Valley's Lost City. Uh, I pulled heavily from David Johannick's article on thelivingmoon.com for this. He wrote a pretty good story, and I'm going to read you most of it. Is there a lost city concealed in the cavernous depths of the Panamint Mountains of California's Death Valley? Death Valley is an unusual place. There are areas below sea level. And it's, on, it's one of the hottest places on Earth, yet beneath the desert are huge aquifers that stretch hundreds of miles and may even connect to the ocean. So is there a lost city concealed in the cavernous depths of the Panamint Mountains of California's Death Valley? Or is it merely a tale told by lonely miners dreaming of striking the mother load? Or perhaps only a con man's plan to fill his pockets with investor funds and fuck off into the desert? Or to Mexico? A few, claiming to have found the city, became as lost as the ancient place that they were seeking. Bork Lee, Death Valley historian and author of the book Death Valley Men, first described the city in 1932. One night, a man named Fred White, his wife, and their partner Thomason stumbled into the cabin of miners Jack and Bill. The visitors complained of car trouble. Thomason ventured to Los Angeles for parts, leaving White and his wife with the miners. Jack and Bill noted that Thomason returned with a rather large roll of cash. After some debate, the three decided to tell the miners exactly what they were doing in Death Valley. Some years earlier, White, while prospecting in an abandoned shaft near Wingate Pass, fell through the shaft's floor in a pre-existing cavern. He found himself in a long, natural cave, 
According to him, and this is a direct quote, it leads all through a great underground city, through the treasure vaults, the royal palace, and the council chambers, and it connects to a series of beautiful galleries with stone arches in the east slope of the Panamint Mountains. Those arches are like a big window in the side of the mountain, and they look down on Death Valley. Jack and Bill looked into White's eyes, and White stared back with a look of fucking madness. But White's look wasn't the incoherent gaze of a lunatic. He believed in what he claimed to have found. White's madness was the glee of somebody that was about to strike it fucking rich. Jack asked White to start at the beginning of the story. So he did. According to White, he rose in the cavern after he fell, dusted himself off, and peered into the pitch blackness. Looking around his small circle of light, he saw climbing out was impossible. Having only one choice, White crept into the unknown of the cavern. Inch by inch, he made his way down a natural cavern. At certain places, he felt the unmistakable impressions of tool marks. Had he stumbled into another mine, he wondered? I don't know how you could tell what tool marks feel like in the pitch fucking black of a mine, but guess if you know, you know. After hours of clamoring, White's hand slipped off the cavern wall. He fell forward. The wall came to an end, but luckily, the floor remained. This was no longer a cavern floor. It was smooth. It felt polished. Reaching into his pack, White pulled out a candle. Having only a few, he hadn't dared to light one, but now a combination of curiosity and necessity forced him to strike a match. White's jaw dropped when the candlelight illuminated a table. Inlaid jewels glittered in the dim light. He brushed away the dust of unknown years, revealing a table of polished stone, smooth as glass and reflective as a mirror. Running his fingers along the line of encrusted jewels on the table's edge, White bumped into something blocking his path. Looking up, to his horror, White saw that he was not alone. White screamed, dropping the lit candle. Rolling down the table, the candle illuminated a grim gathering. Around the table they sat, dried flesh stretched tight over their ancient bones. White staggered backwards and lost control. His arms searched the darkness to find the cavern from which he came. His fingers found arms, legs, faces. He tried to compose himself, realizing that these bodies were dead and they couldn't hurt him. He stumbled over a strange lever in the floor. White lit another candle. Turning the lever, a sudden burst of flame singed his eyebrows. Other bursts surrounded the circumference of the room. The illumination of gas lights for the first time revealed the full extent of his discovery. White counted at least 100 mummified corpses. Some sat along the table. Others stood like guards around the chamber, propped up by golden spears and shields. Most laid in heaps upon the floor. They wore strange leather clothing, and some wore jewel-adorned leather aprons and gold armbands. Something even more astounding drew his attention. Above him towered the image of a man, or perhaps a god, 89 feet tall and made of solid gold. Fred White would make two more trips to the Lost City, joined by his partner, Thomason, and once with his wife. They found stone doors, balanced so you could move them with your little finger if you found the right place. They ascended passages reaching high into the mountains, leading to large windows overlooking Death Valley. The party developed an astounding theory. They're high above the valley now, but we believe that those entrances in the mountainside were used by the ancient people that built the city. They used to land their boats here. Hmm. 
The explorers hoped to attract scientific interest to their find. White claimed the Smithsonian Institute offered him a million and a half dollars for the discovery. Another government man expressed interest but wanted proof. What proof White had was lost when a friend, with whom they left several artifacts as well as gold and jewels, disavowed any knowledge of these artifacts. Swindled out of their proof, the treasure hunters retrieved more relics, this time burying them near the cavern entrance. Returning to Death Valley on what was to be their fourth trip to the Lost City, the explorers found a drastically changed area. A storm destroyed several landmarks used to locate the cavern. White's party decided their only hope was to locate the city, was to climb to the windows overlooking Death Valley. The treasure hunters were last seen patching a tire near their destination. Jack, Bill, and the other miners searched, but no trace of White, his wife, Thomason, or their car was ever found. The Lost City was forgotten until one day in 1946 when Dr. Bruce Russell approached Howie Hill with a story and a deal too good to be true. Telling a tale eerily or suspiciously similar to White's account, Russell, like White, fell through the bottom of a mine shaft and into a cavern. After following the tunnel, Russell's story begins to differ from White's. Russell told of carvings similar to ancient Egyptian motifs and a ritual hall with symbols commonly seen in Masonic lodges. The bones of extinct animals, including mastodons, saber-toothed tigers, and dinosaurs were stacked along the wall. Gas lights were missing from Russell's story as well, replaced by torches dipped in a tar-like substance. He also found mummies, eight feet tall, laid out side by side. Amazed by Russell's story, Howie Hill eagerly answered the retired physician's call for investors. He and several other potential investors met in a Beverly Hills hotel. There, in an expensive suite, Russell told them his story and unveiled a set of artifacts from the cavern. With the claim of 32 caves found in a 180-square-mile area stretching from Death Valley into southwestern Nevada, the investors were only too happy to donate funds. At this meeting, Russell proposed the founding of Amazing Explorations, a company. Anyone investing in the corporation would be partners and share the wealth. Man, people were suckers back in the day. I could have made a shitload of money selling fucking gold mining scams or auctioning off bridges. My God. A week later, Russell took the investors on an exclusive tour of the caverns. Hill and others claimed to have seen the animal bones as well as the Masonic Temple. After viewing the site, the group decided it was time to tell the world about their amazing discovery. Joined by Dr. Daniel Bovey, Hill called for a press conference on August 4, 1947. It was believed Bovey would lend credibility to the group's claims because of his work in opening New Mexico's cliff dwellings. Dr. Bovey estimated the date of the relics he examined to be 80,000 years old. Hill claimed several mummies had been removed for scientific examination and went on to describe them. These giants are clothed in garments consisting of a medium-length jacket and a trouser extending slightly below the knee. The texture of the material is said to resemble a gray dried sheepskin, but obviously it was taken from an animal unknown today. The press conference went mostly ignored by media. Only a handful of newspapers carried the, source, the story, most notably the San Diego Union. Not to be deterred by the lack of publicity, Russell made one more trip to the caverns. He said farewell to his investors and promised to open an account at a local Barstow bank. Oh, <laughs> Barstow. Anus Mundi. The asshole of the world. 
Weeks later, Russell's car was found in Death Valley with a burst radiator. Inside was his suitcase, but no artifacts and no money. No Barstow bank account had opened an account. Russell and the investment funds were never seen again. The other members of Amazing Explorations tried in vain to find the tunnels by themselves. Nobody remembered landmarks, and the ever-changing desert landscape didn't help them at all either. Tom Wilson, Death Valley guide and miner as well as full-blooded Paiute Native American, searched for the tunnels in the 1920s, finding a shaft where no shaft had a right to be. Wilson explored to the bottom but found nothing. He did have a good reason for looking, though. Many years earlier, his grandfather, too, had found the tunnel. His grandfather's story is one of the strangest of all. One day while exploring, Tom's grandfather stumbled across a strange cavern in the Panamint Mountains. The elder Wilson became lost in, a, lost in a series of caves. Reaching the end of a long tunnel, he met a strange people. They wore clothing made out of some kind of leather, spoke an unknown language, and ate strange foods that the native had never tasted. The people had a wealth of gold and rode horses. Despite their differences, they welcomed the Native American man, inviting him to stay. After three years, he left his new friends and made his way home through the tunnels. The Wilsons would have known the legends from their Paiute folklore. The Paiutes believed the gateway to the afterlife could be reached through an underground passage leading to Nagantuwip, the home of the spirits, ruled by the god, the god Shin-au-av, and his beautiful virgin daughters. According to the legend, only one man dared venture to Naguntawip in his earthly body. Mourning the loss of his beloved wife, a great chief descended into the passage. Inching his way through the seemingly endless tunnel, the brave warrior was beset by the trials of the underworld. Fighting through hordes of demons, evil spirits, and savage beasts, the chief approached his final challenge. A narrow bridge of rock stretched over a bottomless chasm. Across the abyss, the beautiful maidens of Shin-au-av beckoned and encouraged him to cross. At his back snarled the underworld creatures. Bravely, the chieftain crossed, entering the fabulous land of Naguntawip. The most beautiful of Shin-au-av's daughters approached, offering to spend eternity with the chieftain. The chief's love for his wife was unwavering, and he demanded to be taken to her. Impressed by the chief's bravery and touched by his devotion, the maiden took his hand and led him deeper into the spirit world. Around a huge fire, the spirits of thousands danced to happy music. Bottomless vessels of cactus wine and baskets of fine food were enjoyed by all. The chief searched the endless faces for his love. There are far too many. How will I find my wife? You must wait here until you see her. When you do, you must take her at once. If you return her successfully to your world, she will be returned to the flesh. If you fail, she shall remain. Be warned, great chief. See that she does not falter from your grasp. If she looks back, even one passing glance, she'll stay here forever. With that grim warning, the maiden rejoined the dancers. After three days and three nights, the chief saw his wife in the crowd. Rushing to her side, he grabbed her and fled. Reaching the narrow bridge, they hesitated. The snarling creatures across the chasm frightened his wife, who looked back towards the peaceful afterlife. Realizing the fateful mistake too late, the chief reached for his wife, but at his touch she vanished. The sorrowful chief returned to the upper world alone. 
The tale told by Navajo chief Oga Make is by far the weirdest of all. He spoke of a people known as the Hav Masuvs, who settled in Death Valley long ago when it was still a great sea. A seafaring people, the Hav Masuvs, came in huge rowing ships, discovering a huge cavern deep under the Panamints they built a great underground city. In time, the desert sands replaced their great sea, and when ships were no longer usable, the Hav Masuvs took to the air in flying canoes, described as silvery ships with wings. When not using aircraft, the Hav Masuvs rode strange, snowy white animals unknown to the natives at the time. The Hav Masuvs were a beautiful people with golden-tinted skin and long, dark hair. They wore toga-like garments and sandals. Hav Masuvs had advanced weapons, a small, non-lethal tube which stuns one with a prickly feeling like the rain like a rain of a rain or a cactus needle. The other, a long silver tube, when it's pointed at you, death follows. Paiute chieftain lived with the Hav Masuvs. He described the underground city as an ancient city of marble beauty. The city was lit by white lights, which burn night and day, and never go out or need any fuel. Since 1947, when Dr. Russell and his amazing explorations made their claims of the lost city underneath Death Valley, nobody else has claimed to have made any discoveries. No, artifact, or no artifacts brought out by White or Russell have ever resurfaced. What happened to the mummies Hill claimed were removed? What happened to Dr. Bovee, who claimed to inspect and date the mummies and relics? Perhaps, someday, some of the lost artifacts will surface. Until then, the claims of giant mummified human remains seem to be the most verifiable of the discoveries. In 1889, Ed Earl Rep, working with his brothers Flangler Crowden and Charles Cowden, recovered the fossilized remains of a seven and one half foot tall woman in Death Valley. In July of 1895, near Brittlevale Falls, California, miners led by G.F. Martindale found the remains of a woman almost seven feet tall still holding a mummified child. However, the most documented and verifiable account of giant remains comes from Lovelock Cave in Nevada. In 1911, James Hart and David Pug discovered the remains of several red-haired giants as well as numerous cultural artifacts. In 1912, professional excavations under the direction of Lulin Loud began. In all, almost 60 bodies were recovered. Two skulls recovered from Lovelock Cave can still be seen in museums in Lovelock, and Winnemucca, Nevada. While not proving the existence of a lost city, others, other accounts of giant human remains found in the American Southwest lend credence to Russell's claims of the Death Valley Giants. Could Fred White have heard the old Indian legends and made up his story just to impress miners Jack and Bill? He didn't solicit for funds. In fact, just the opposite happened. White offered them a share of the treasure as thanks for their hospitality. Bork Lee seemed to take the position that no lost city existed, but yet he admitted having looked for it, as did Jack, Bill, and Tom Wilson, based on his grandfather's account. Could Dr. Russell have read Borkley's book and based his story on that? Why would a retired physician living in Beverly Hills have risked his life in one of the harshest environments on Earth? He would have had to have made or have purchased artifacts and planted them in a remote Death Valley cavern, not to mention carving symbols and hieroglyphics into the wall. If all he wanted to do was con an investor, couldn't he have found an easier and less risky way? Yes, he could have. Howard Hill, Dr. Bovee, and other investors inspected the artifacts, mummies, and location. Bovee, a professional, 
a professional archaeologist wouldn't have been fooled by stage props or homemade artifacts. Hill and Bovey would have to have been in on the con, but they never tried to skip town, and Hill lost money in the deal. Which could have been set up arguably too, but I don't know. I'd like to believe it wasn't a setup, but it probably was, because I'm not a fucking idiot. If they did make it up, they may have paid for it with their lives. White's party and Dr. Russell's were never seen or heard from again. Perhaps someday, hikers will stumble across their remains and the mystery will be solved. Or perhaps, like Tom Wilson's grandfather, they too found a strange people living beyond a long tunnel in the Panamint Mountains, only they decided to stay in the lost city of the Havamasoobs. God, I love that fucking story. I love it. I love it. What will you do when you finally win the lottery? I'm going to help starving children in foreign countries. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to indulge in every whim and then learn to hate myself like a real rich person. I'm going to go on a sex tourism trip around the world. Nebraska, Thailand, I don't give a shit. I'll be tearing up ass globally. Start dreaming. Play the San Andreas State Lottery and have all your fantasies come true. The video game of the year. A combination of all the hate. I am half Russian, half Asian, half Muslim. I will defeat the Americans. A first-person shooter with a story like no other. But Commander, they will be sending the Bravo Sierra International Elite Special Forces Ranger Squad after you. <laughs> they will never catch me. The only way into my hideout is by those planes that got stolen somewhere in the absurdly exotic last country. What's that noise? And why aren't we speaking Russian? Whiskey Sour Poontang, you are clear to fire. Righteous Slaughter 7, the innovative art of contemporary killing. How do you kill? Rated PG. Pretty much the same as the last game. All right, so uh, I was planning just on talking about Death Valley, but I still have some time left, and I'm done with Death Valley. So instead of boring you to death with more listing of names, let's talk about another place in California called Griffith Park. Uh, I'm sure some of you have seen it. It's the you guys know the big ass Hollywood sign, you out of staters. That's that's part of the Griffith Land, the Griffith Park land parcel. Uh, there are caved carves, caved caves carved in canyons, sheer cliffs twisting trails and craggy peaks. All of it barely more than a mile from the freeway, but seemingly a world away. That's what make, makes the rugged mountains of Griffith Park so appealing to filmmakers. It's been home to the Bat Cave, a hiding place for Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's been a Klingon penal colony in the Star Trek series. It's been a lot of things. But the Los Angeles Park has enough strange and sometimes grim history for a movie of its own. It's said to be inhabited by ghosts and haunted by a 150-year-old curse. And it's been the scene of a number of murder mysteries in the past few years, including one that's, still, that's currently still unfolding. It began earlier this month when a pair of hikers stumbled upon a human skull laying partially uncovered on a little-used side trail within a stone's throw of the park's famous Hollywood sign. Investigators for the Los Angeles Police Department and coroner's office swarmed to the spot, searching for evidence of a crime scene, but they found nothing. A little more than a week later, a forensic anthropologist with the coroner's office says that the skull belonged to a woman who was at least 20 at the time of her death, according to the Los Angeles Times. The fragment of bone has been lying in the park for at least one year, and as many as ten, but it's still not clear who the woman was or how she died. 
When reporters trekked up into the canyon the morning after the skull was found, the hikers they encountered seemed spooked, but not entirely surprised by the discovery. It's pretty rugged and a lot of shrub berries and bush, Paula Mindes told KABC. Once you get off the beaten trail, anything could be happening here. That's my L.A. basic bitch hiker voice, in case you were wondering. Tell me I'm wrong. Somebody call me a liar. I'm not. Griffith Park is one of the country's largest urban parks. 4,200 acres of rocky, rubble-strewn, shit-covered mountains and chaparral-covered slopes. A zoo, an observatory, museums, and an amphitheater dot the park's borders, but its interior is rugged and remote by Los Angeles city standards. The park is said to have been cursed since its beginning. In the mid-19th century, it was a vast, rich ranch belonging to a wealthy bachelor by the name of Don Antonio Feliz, who lived there with his housekeeper and his niece, Petronia. In 1863, as the Don lay dying of smallpox, an influential local politician named Antonio Coronel came to draw up Feliz's will. Coronel and his lawyer claimed that Feliz gave his assent to the document, which left the ranch to the politician and left nothing for his niece Petronella. Petronia. But others say that there was a stick attached to the ailing man's head, forcing him to nod at, at the will as it was read for his approval. So they rigged him up like a marionette and fucked with his head. Either way, Petronia was infuriated by the outcome. The assets of the Feliz family shall be your curse, she swore, according to legend at least. The wrath of heaven and vengeance of hell shall fall upon this accursed place. The curse of the Felizes may be nothing more but a, nothing more than a myth. But it is true that the ranch that would become Griffith, Griffith Park changed hands with disconcerting rapidity over the next 30 years and that its many owners kept meeting disgusting fates. Coronel swiftly ceded the property to his attorney, who was shot and killed while celebrating the sale of the land's water rights. The next owner attempted to turn the ranch into a dairy business, but the cattle sickened and died, and grasshoppers and fires demolished the crops. During the tenure of its last owner, Griffey J. Griffith, a lightning storm brought down huge stands of trees and sent wall of water cascading through the canyons ruining much of the ranch. According to the book Victorian Los Angeles, ranch hands claim they saw Feliz's ghost riding the wave down a hillside, cheering his successor's demise. I just imagine Feliz riding a big-ass longboard, (laughs) shredding the gnar, bro, fucking throwing up the hang loose at him and giggling, laughing, (laughs) laughing in Mexican, ja, ja, ja. Afterward, Griffith would only visit the property during the day, and in 1896, apparently decided that the land was more trouble than it was worth, and he donated it to Los Angeles as a Christmas present. The city of Los Angeles. Once in public hands, the misfortunes at Griffith Park seemed to recede, but the rumors did not. The Feliz's curse was blamed after 29 civilian Conservation Corps workers died in a 1933 wildfire. This one's funny. The death of a young couple who were crushed by a falling tree while fucking on a picnic table in 1976 only added to the tales that the place was fucking cursed. But in 2002, Griffith Park's chief ranger Albert Torres, in true Los Angeles cop fashion, sneered at the notion that visitors had anything to fear from the park's undead inhabitants. 
Well, uh, frankly, I'm not afraid of uh, any make-believe demons as much as I am of some of the living and breathing human monsters who come here on a semi-regular basis, he told the Los Angeles Times. If you knew even a quarter of the stuff that uh, we find in the park's perimeter, you'd never set foot in it again. Animal sacrifices, uh, satanic cults, murders, prostitution, with stuff like that happening on a regular basis, it makes a pair of 30-year-old ghosts look like the good times. Thank you, Officer Friendly. In 2012, two women walking their dog made a gruesome discovery on one of the park's hiking trails below the Hollywood sign. It was a severed head, wrapped in a plastic bag. A day later, investigators scouring the scene found more body parts, a right hand and feet buried in a shallow grave. The left hand was found just hours after, according to the Los Angeles Times. A fingerprint test would identify the remains as belonging to a 66-year-old Hervey Medellin, a former Airlines Mexicana employee. But no one knew who would have wanted him dead. Rumors swirled, and I remember this, that Medellin was a part of a Mexican drug cartel or a victim of, a, of the Canadian cannibal killer, who was also accused of dismembering and eating a Chinese graduate student. It would be three years before police convicted the real killer. Any guesses who it was? Makes a whole lot of sense. It was Medellin's living boyfriend, Gabriel Campos Martinez, who, prosecutors say, typed out an internet search on how to butcher a human carcass for human consumption the day after Medellin was last seen alive. Campos Martinez is now serving a 25-year sentence. Another man's body, found in the park last year, turned out to belong to a 24-year-old who had been convicted of meeting minors for sex, according to the L.A. IST. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office said it was an apparent suicide. The mysteries of others remained found in the park are still unsolved. In 2010, hikers found a man's skull on Park Skyline Trail, yet another one. Authorities told KABC the skull had likely been in the park for as many as two years. An exhaustive search turned up no other remains. At the time, Assistant Chief Ed Winter of the coroner's office told the TV station that his office would attempt to match the skull's DNA and dental work to the profile of people missing in the area. It could take us years to locate and figure out who this person is, he said. And uh, 12 years later, they still don't know. They still don't know who it was. Interesting. In San Andreas, we recycle everything, including the tired old adage that we're going to pull ourselves out of this financial shithole. But you can pull yourself out of your financial situation by donating your car to an unspecified, ambiguous charity. It's shipped to China to be disassembled by children who go blind from mercury exposure while you get a healthy tax write-off. We rip off charities while you rip off Uncle Sam by massively overvaluing that rust bucket in your tax returns. And everyone's the winner. Donate your car today. Fleesa means convenience like never before. Soon, you'll always be within 50 feet of a Fleesa Bank ATM. We won't stop until we're on every corner in Los Santos, Liberty City, and every other major metropolitan area. But why stop there? We're putting Fleesa ATMs everywhere. The dentist office, family planning clinics, adult novelty shops, funeral homes, and children's wards. Call today and we'll even put an ATM in your bedroom to spice things up. 
stop by Fleesa Bank and learn more about our range of services that weren't possible until we lobbied for deregulation. Fleesa, credit cards, banking, brokerage. It's time to start paying for everything. All right, I got one more because I'm feeling generous. This one is, we're going to be talking about the underground catacombs of Los Angeles's lizard people. One of the more colorful urban legends of Los Angeles is that of the lizard people. It's an advanced race of humans who created an underground city here in Los Angeles some 5,000 years ago. According to the story, incalculable riches and gold tablets with the origins of human civilization carved into them were just waiting to be discovered by some savvy treasure hunter. This super race, allegedly related to the Mayans, had purportedly fled a catastrophic meteor shower and created several such communities along the Pacific coast, including the one in our Deer Basin. The so-called lizard people were so intellectually and technologically advanced that they used mysterious chemicals to dig a network of some 285 tunnels fully equipped with vast chambers large enough to accommodate a thousand families who lived off of a store of food and water placed there by the tribe. This story, loosely drawn from a Hopi Indian myth by a tribesman called Chief Greenleaf. Chief Greenleaf, brother! <laughs> that sounded more like Chief Macho Man, but stoner voice, was told to a geophysicist and mining engineer named George Warren Schufel in 1933. As it turns out, Schufel had invented what he called a radio X-ray machine, which he believed could detect underground tunnels. Add, to, add that to the promise of an ancient sheepskin map held by two other treasure seekers, and you have the tale that went viral by 1933 standards. Schufel's quest for the lizard people's golden treasure was picked up and followed closely by the Los Angeles Times and in turn the Associated Press, which spread Schufel's search for the lost catacombs and their inhabitants all across America. The entire underground city, appropriately shaped like a lizard, reached from Elysian Park, which was the head of the lizard, to today's central library, which was the ass of the tail. Schufelt swore up and down that he had discovered the exact locations of 1,900 square feet of tunnels, rooms with 9,000 square feet of floor space, and 16 places where gold was stored all by using his magic x-ray machine. He created this map of the passages below the surface of Fort Monroe Hill, and after getting permission from the County Board of Supervisors, he began to dig up North Street overlooking Sunset, Spring, and North Broadway. That was watched... And this was watched like an engineering soap opera by folks in the grip of the Depression. The wildly speculative newspaper reports insisted that the buried treasure was Spanish gold, planted in the colonial period, and that the crew felt they were ready to bring it out after 28 feet of the shaft was sunk. The deal made by Schufelt and his small team of associates was a 50-50 split with the county, but the dig was plagued by challenges, dense boulders, and plenty of mud after the shafts passed up the water table. Some experts claim the dig must reach a thousand feet. Uh, and while Choufflet did accomplish 250 feet, he found no gold and, more importantly, no tunnels. When winter turned to spring, the digging stopped and the money dried up and the newspaper stories vanished, along with the radio x-ray. G. Warren, as he was called in the days of the great Lizard City quest, stayed around Los Angeles and finally passed on 
in North Hollywood in November of 1957, leaving behind a great story and his stupid fucking memorable map of the lizard catacombs. Doesn't look much like a lizard to me. It kind of looks like testicular cancer. Interesting story, though. It's interesting that it matches up with another Native American tribe about subterranean folk. You know, like the Death Valley one, they also had their own legend about subterranean folk. Strange. It's always weird when there's things that repeat in history when those people might not have interacted with each other. They may have too, though. What's not that far from Death Valley to Los Angeles, but it's a long way by the standards of the time. Couldn't imagine walking from L.A. to Death Valley to tell a story about lizard people living under the dirt. But stranger shit's happened, I guess. Anyway, I think that's going to do it. So if you guys are still interested in trying out for the network slots, please DM me on Instagram.com slash DukeLand17. Remember to cancel your Patreon accounts. Uh, if you want to know why, send me a DM also on Instagram.com slash DukeLand17, and I'll be glad to tell you. But for fear of being accused of slander, I will not be doing it here. But if you have a Patreon account, there is no more premium content for reasons that I will explain to you in private if you'd like to know. Just message me and I'll tell you. But yeah, send audition tapes to DukeLandis17 on Instagram. And that is all. I'll check back with you guys real soon. Like I said, I will not be screwing the pooch this Halloween season like I did last year. And uh, stay, ex stay excited for new episodes because they're going to be coming frequently. And stay spooky. All right, guys.